Hey everybody, Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 38th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series and today's episode is entitled Surviving a Tsunami, yes, Surviving a Tsunami with Francois de Nouvelle from Chasing Excellence. The episodes keep getting better and better and this is an absolutely crazy story that's going to blow your mind of how Francois um, survived a tsunami and saved the life of a five-year-old girl and and an, am- an amazing recollection of, of what happened to him. Um, leading up to that, is his whole life's been absolutely fascinating. You know, becoming a par- paratrooper in the Belgium Army and all the weird and wonderful travel stories that him and his wife have encountered and all the things he's taken on. Um, it sort of comes to a head where Francois, you know, reaccounts what happened that day during the tsunami and these, these finite moments where he was sort of absolutely life and death situation and how all his training in the military and these various aspects um, held it all together so that he could he could not only survive and um, but also you know save save the goal of a young save the life of a young Indonesian girl. This is such a huge pivotal part of Francois's life, and I'm not really going to ruin it now because the podcast really is worth listening to. But all about how he used that incident to come out of a state of depression and and flip it in terms of what he does now, which is high performance coaching under the Chasing Excellence brand. For me, as always, if you want to reach out for support and help, you know, clintfosty.com forward slash coaching and absolutely the Wildford program is kicking off now every single month. So clintfosty.com forward slash Wildford. I actually met Francois through the Wildford certification process and we did our coaching cert together. So if you are in Europe, then definitely look him up. He's he's a man. He's a man who will have your back and will guide you through the 90 days. Absolutely. Um, excellently. I just want to thank Francois sincerely from the bottom of my heart for sharing his story story so openly. There's some very, very, very raw moments in there, and I, I personally don't know how he managed to keep it together to tell the story. So strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 38th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast series and today we are joined by Francois de Neville. Francois welcome to the podcast. Hi Clint thank you. Did I butcher that name or did I get it right? It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> there you go so one hell of a topic today uh, the topic of today is, is, is surviving a tsunami um, which is <laughs> which is a story I don't know much about to be honest but I'm super super excited um, so I've met Francois through um, Wildford certification. We did our coaches certification together and obviously just got to know each other, but through that six month journey and got a glimpse of his story um, there. And obviously today's all about, you know, finding out, I know there's some, some, some backstory about how it helped him pivot his life. So we're just going to get to understand um, all about that journey. So firstly, how's your day been, sir? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Still really so where, where, where are you based at the moment? You're French, but where are you based at the moment? Yeah, for the moment, I'm uh, living in Bulgaria. Okay. And, and what, 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 what took you there? Well, this is a long, long, long story. Uh, I think we're going to get to this later. Oh, oh do you want to get? No, we'll get to that later. We'll, we'll get to that later. Very importantly, what is, we'll, we'll, we don't want to ruin a podcast, right? What, is, <laughs> what time of the day is there for you in the morning? Huh? Uh, it's 10 a.m., yeah. Okay, cool. So you should super energized. So as always in the in, <laughs> Wildford, right? Uh, so as always as part of the podcast, we just like to run a backstory sort of Francois. So if you can just take us back where you were born, early life, what you're like as a kid, I'm assuming pretty active. So you just want to pull us all the way back. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So I was born in Belgium and uh, I grew up there. 
in a beautiful, loving family. Everything was great. I was really active as a kid. I really liked to do sport and push my limits all the time. And uh, I was really lucky to be growing kind of in the countryside. So I could spend a lot of time in nature. And that was just really nice. And um, what's sorry, Francois, what sports were you as a kid? What, what are you sort of focused on? Um, I really love mountain biking, uh, mm-hmm. just playing outside and everything. Motocross I did as well. Climbing. I spent a lot of time with my skateboard as well in skate parks and all this kind of sport that my mom was quite worried about and thinking, <laughs> stop chasing your limits all the time. But that just made me feel alive. So I was really driven with all of this kind of stuff that gives you adrenaline. You know? Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was quite funny because when I was like 16, 17, I didn't really know what I was about to do with my life, what I was about to study, or I didn't know what was my calling. And that time, I you need to visualize that. I had dreadlocks like till here. I was living in my skateboard and guitar, and I was kind of a hipster style kind of thing. And one day, I just went to my parents and I said, I'm going to join the army. And I was completely <laughs> Blue. I mean, if you visualize this 17-year-old kid with his dreadlock yeah. and stuff, you're saying, I'm going to join the army. And they were really shocked, like, all right, ready. And I just said, I don't know why, it got to my path. That was kind of a challenge as well mm. to become a paratroopers commando. Mm. And in Belgium, we have, we have a small army. So the commandos and the paratroopers are in the same unit. And it's kind of an elite and it's really, really tough to get there. And I was thinking, I want to become an officer in this kind of unit. And I put this big challenge in front of me. Mm. So I went there, I cut my dreadlocks and I joined the military. Academy. So, so, so just, I just want to stop you there before you went yeah. into the military at the stage where you're looking at uni or, and then if not, when did you realize that the army and the paratrooper goal, like, do you remember that moment where you was like, this is what I want to do? Yeah, funny enough, I was thinking maybe I'm going to do chemistry or something with experimenting. I like experiment stuff. I was thinking, okay, but is it going to give me all this fulfillment I have when I'm going outside and having all this adrenaline all the time? And then one of my best friends just came and said, have you ever heard about the Royal Military Academy? No. And so I got a look at this and I knew I'm going to do that. I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. It was more an impulse, but I was just like, Yeah. yeah, I'm all in. Let's do this. And so I joined with him and uh, that has been the best decision I've done in my life when I was a kid. I was so happy I, did, I took this decision, yeah. And what did, what did your parents say at the time? Um, they were really, really supportive. First of all, they were really shocked and surprised, obviously, because they didn't expect <laughs> that at all. I was coming out of the blue, but I really have, I'm really lucky for, for the parents I have. They are so mm-hmm. supportive and it's, whatever you want to do, just do it with your full heart and we're going to support to do whatever you choose to do. So awesome. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did it, uh, how did it go into the military? How was that intake? So <laughs> the intake was quite funny because obviously I went to pass all the exams uh, to get in still mm. having my dreadlocks because I was thinking if I don't get in and I'm going to keep them. <laughs> so that was quite interesting to be in this military world with all the thing like, wow, really funny, but um, no, it went actually super well. And my objective to reach the commando paratroopers as an officer, that was quite a long term because I had to go through five years of the military academy to get my master degree. And then after that, get to one full year of infantry school and then the paratroopers commando training. So I was looking at a scale of seven years of hard work to get to the mm. position I wanted to reach. But that also gave me a, a big drive. I was just having this goal in front of me and, and looking at it at, at this green beret I wanted to have and wear proudly. And so that was 
that was just amazing. And this journey, I mean, all the people who've been to the military, they know the bound it creates, they know how it shapes how you, the person you are and really giving you all those values and, and, and this discipline that is creating in it. So I had the best job ever, to be honest. After seven years, when I reached that point, yeah. after this whole hard work, I was really, really happy. I mean, the job was going from jumping from planes to going uh, climbing to do a uh, boat operation and stuff. That was, that was so fulfilling, but I was yeah. also really demanding. So Definitely. I just want to pull back to your five years and just get an understanding. So do you, do you get the equivalent of a university degree during that five years, hence your master's? So the academy is, because they have that here in Australia as well, where you can kind of go, go to, I think it's called uh, ADFA here, the, the Defence Force Academy, but you end up with the equivalent of a university degree. Was, was that what you got there? And did you have to do a master's level, which is year four and five, to qualify for the paratroopers? Yeah, actually... To become an officer, I needed to have this master degree. So I studied in the military academy and I did, I have a master in um, uh, management and uh, weapon system. Okay. And with this master, I could, I was actually becoming an officer. That's, that's how mm. it works. So uh, after those five years, I could join the paratroopers commando as an officer. And that was the whole parkour. So, so my naive as and i think what i've got a lot of military mates here in australia they call us civilians but as my as my civilian um naivety i'm assuming the paratroopers would be a very elite squad to get into um yeah i mean obviously we watch too many movies and so do you just want to talk about the selection process i mean what the dropout rate is and how both physically and mentally how challenging that process was to qualify yeah yeah, that, that's, that's a challenge, definitely. And that's why they want to be an elite unit. So obviously, they don't want to let everybody in. So already to get there, we had a lot, I had a lot of selection because when you get in this process, uh, we're just the first, the, the top of the, of the ranking have the choice. They can decide whatever they want to go. So from year one to year five in the military academy, that's kind of a competition to be at the top. So you're sure you're going to have the spot that you wish for. Yeah. And after when I finally joined the Commander Paratroopers training, there, there's already a lot of uh, physical uh, exams to be sure that your body is actually functioning really well. Mm. That's one thing. And then I think the most difficult, that was kind of four months, the four most difficult months of my life, I would wow. say. Um, I just met my wife, well, the woman that I married later, uh, just before that. And, you know, just <laughs> we met in Indonesia, a small island, like really random. And then uh, she was living in, in, uh, in Spain at the time. And mm. I just told her, look, I would love to have a relationship together, but I'm going to go for four months in the military training and I'm not going to have any phone. I'm not going to be there the whole week. <laughs> I'm going to be sleeping the whole weekend. Should yeah. we meet each other again in four months? And she said, yes. I mean, that was, a, that was great. But back to the training. <laughs> it, it's so... I think mentally and physically, yeah, definitely. Mentally, mm. you know, it's it's long. Four months is long. Four long four months with giving your best all the time, having to prove yourself constantly, yeah. being in the physical state of sleep deprivation, of hunger a lot of time, and muscle soreness and problems everywhere. You know, mm. we kind of eating of uh, painkillers and stuff to be able to go through because it's it's really heavy on the body, definitely. So out of your four-month intake, like how many people join as a, and how many people actually make it through? Because, I mean, you know, the way I'm hearing, this is a weeding out process. So there's five years of getting the best of the best. And then the yeah. best of the best go through that four months. And out of that, 
intake, whatever that number is, how many actually qualify and become part of that squad? I don't exactly remember the number, but I do believe we we joined maybe at 35 and we were mm. 20-something finishing. Okay. Uh, most of the people are dropping off because of injury. Uh, you push too much, you know, this uh, inflammation in the, in the legs, in the feet or whatever you have. And sometimes, you know, you're so tired working with heavy backpacks, uh, heavy guns around, and then you just fall, you hurt your knee. And then that's a problem because we, I mean, we're working 100 kilometers a week, uh, probably with this 40 kilo bags. So <laughs> definitely there's a moment your body is just giving up. That, that's and how, how much do you weigh? Because you're probably 70s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I, I, I started the training. I was maybe 74. I finished, I was maybe 67 or something. Wow, with a 40 kilogram pack. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy. That was really tough. But I think that's really the moment you realize how your mental mm. is actually driving everything and how strong you are. And what I really love in this training is that we got to discover what is your limit. And we think your limit is there. You know, you look at it like, well, it's, I can maybe that's really the limit. And then you cross this line, you realize, oh, actually, my limit is there. Mm-hmm. And then you cross this line and you realize, wow, our body, this is so fascinating. We are so much stronger than we think. And it all comes from here. So do you, do you remember any distinct moments in that four months? And I'm sure they're probably about 100, right? But where A, you wanted to give up um, because you're just so sore and so tired or where it sucked so much, any story that you can or allowed to share that you were in the scenario and you, and you had that, well, I like to call it that coming to Jesus moment where you're like, which way do yeah. I go here, right? Red, blue, red, pole, blue, pole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's two moments I think of right now. There's one, we were doing a sleep, uh, no sleep week. So basically <laughs> we start on Monday and you being so active every single day, mm. uh, it's a, uh, hell lot of walking and everything. So you just don't have time to sleep. And that's the whole point to experience what is sleep deprivation. But this is already after one and maybe two months or maybe even more than that in, in the training. So you're already pretty exhausted when you start. Wow. And I have to say that the first day it's hard. The second day it's really hard. The third day you start hallucinating and you mm-hmm. cannot really understand what is real, what is not real. I remember we were walking in the night. We had like, I don't know how many kilometers, uh, work to do and you need to read the map but i remember i could not open my eyes i could not see i could not understand what was happening and you started one person was reading the map with a group of three and mm-hmm. um the others were just hanging on the bag and you i actually really sleep what i was walking uh, you you're really taking a nap while your body just do the moves and then that's not <laughs> you see sometimes you fall down like what's yeah. happening and i remember this distinct Thing. I was on this road and it was rainy. And so you had this little pound of water. I don't know exactly what you call that, but this little pound mm-hmm. of water. And I thought that was like a hole, like a cliff. You know, I was just walking around them. I think I cannot fall. I'm going to die if I fall in. This is so dangerous. Why do they make us walk in there? I mean, that was completely hallucinating. And this, this whole thing, this is when you're sleep deprived to that point, you would do anything you can to stop the pain. Seriously, mm-hmm. your mental is getting insane. And that this whole fight against yourself, that is really, really interesting. Especially when the instructors are coming to you, you want to quit? You should quit. You should quit right now. That's good for that. Go back to your mom. And this whole thinking, yeah, I, w- I really want to do that. No, come on. I'm going to stay. This whole internal dialogue, it's so, so interesting. 
That's and, crazy, and, man. Yeah. And another moment I was doing a obstacle race there. Mm. So we had a lot of this obstacle stuff to do. And I fell from three meters on a rope uh, parkour. I fell mm. on my back and I could not breathe. And <laughs> that was really difficult. I went to the doctor immediately and I said, I have inter uh, bruises between my ribs. In Intercostal my ribs. muscles, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. Mm. And uh, I said, you need to rest like a couple of days. I can't. If I miss more than one or two days, I think I'm out. Mm. So I was thinking, okay, it's so easy. And it was really tempting, you know, like I have the perfect excuse to actually stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was really a moment. Like I really wanted to give up that time. Like, oh, I'm in pain. It's so hard, you know, trying to be really the victim of it. it's not my yeah. fault. I just fell and I can use this. And then I realized, wait a moment. Is it an excuse? Is it not really bullshit what you're thinking right now? And I pushed through it. I'm so happy I did. But yeah, there was a moment of really weakness there. That's a beautiful analogy for the victim role, right? And that's something when I coach, I'm always like, oh, that's a good story. You know, how long yeah. are you going to be the victim? I mean, I know that you're under extreme circumstance, but but we, we, we get given these little cracks of doors open anyway. If you choose to take them, you could run through, right? And everyone would have gone, oh, well, you fell from three meters. So of course, well, you know, what do you expect? Yeah. I love this metaphor with the doors because it's really like you see the door half open and a lot of light behind. You're like, oh, I want to open this door and jump right in. <laughs> you know, yeah. For you, there was a, a pillow on the other side where you could just see. <laughs> so, so do you, I mean, when you, when you have your four-month protocol, do you, do you know if the end's coming or do you kind of more or less or do, or do you just keep going until it's done? We know the, the end date, but we don't know what's happening week, okay. week after week. So that's the whole mental thing that you never know what is the next hour going to be about. And this is painful. Honestly, yeah. you don't know if, because maybe you're like, you're going to have lunch and you have like 15 minutes and then they're going to tell you, okay, we're going for 50 kilometers walk the whole night. You're like, all right. Or, you know, take the lead of the whole platoon and we do this exercise. And that was this constant stress of being put on the spot because imagine all this, how you feel in your body, in your head. And then suddenly the instructor coming at you like, Right now, you're the leader. And then you, it can happen at 2 o'clock, 2 a.m. in the morning or whatever time it is. And then suddenly you find yourself in front of this instructor. You receive the orders and the whole plan for the thing. And then you need to think. Yeah. Sounds stupid. <laughs> Activate no. your brain in these conditions with your heart pumping and thinking, I'm going to lead those 30 guys right now to an exercise. If I screw up, we're going to end up walking more, not have time to sleep, not have time mm. to eat. I mean... Everybody is then looking at you like, dude, come on, to the Don't job now. Wrong. And yeah. So there's so much pressure. Yeah, there's so, so much pressure around it. And every, I remember every time when uh, it was announced who was going to be the next uh, leader uh, for the exercise, yeah. everybody was just standing there in the, in, the, in the platoon and just thinking, please not me, please not me, not right now. <laughs> you know it's going to happen anyway. But when it's happened, you feel everybody is like, ah, and you... <laughs> <laughs> and this dynamic you feel the energy of everybody relieved and you say like oh that's my turn <laughs> but i mean you must you know with the physical the probably starving as well the you know the sleep deprivation but you, you're in that constant fight and flight mode i mean you you because you're waiting because you i mean I, I i always quote die hard but there's that scene in die hard one where bruce willis writes on the um on in blood with his feet for hans grober the anticipation of death is worse than death itself yeah. Yeah. But it's for you yeah. guys just because you don't know, right? It's just like anything yeah. you could, well, you're jumping out of plane, you're doing that. That must really mess with you. It definitely does. But all this situation, all this environment is just, if you can thrive in this or yeah. make your best in this, 
when you're in a good environment, man, you're excellent. And that's the whole point of really pushing you to the very, very limit to find out mm. when you are under the most stress possible, are you going to be able to deliver and to do what you're supposed to do? Because this is a training. I mean, if you used to go on an operation somewhere and you have bullets flying around and people dying and whatever yeah. it is, you need to be sharp. And so the training is hard, but it really pays off because it's building us. It's really reinforcing mm. our mental and physical and and our thought process to be able to deal with the situation and not let all the emotion flying around. And it really saved my life as I'm going to explain later. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you remember the feeling, um, the exact moment when they said it's over and you knew you were done? <sighs> yeah. That's one of the most joyous memory I have. And that was really strange because it was pouring down as that day. I mean, it was so, so much rain and it was in mid December. So it was cold humid and I got to put my green beret on my head and I had the, the feeling in my whole body and my wife came uh, she flew from Madrid to come there and she was there yeah. at the ceremony and I was so proud my family was there I was so so proud of what I accomplished because I set a goal seven years before and I did it and I was there and I just I just can't remember the feeling of having it on my head and walking after in the in the, in the parade and like mm. oh man no, no I am there I know that's the start of being active as a commando paratrooper, you know, as the end of the journey and the first yeah. very beginning of the next journey never stops. <laughs> but yeah. the feeling forever, I'm never going to forget. Yeah. So let's pull back to your wife. So she's obviously very understanding because you started dating and you disappeared for four months. Um, yeah. how, how did that relationship sort of foster and, and, and how did you guys end up getting married? Because obviously during those, yeah. those last two years, you must have ended up marrying. Yeah. So that was really funny because... So since I'm, I'm a kid as well, I always want to travel. Uh, exploring yeah. the world is something high on my list. And I like the survival things. And I see myself going jungles, mountains, desert, everywhere. And when I was a kid, I was actually dreaming of being this explorer, you know, going on the boats uh, five centuries ago and go discover yeah. the world. <laughs> so this was really a big drive for me. And I realized, okay, no, I've, when I was in the army, I was thinking, I'm going to take every single time I have to go and explore the world when I can. Mm. I remember I had... The year before I joined the, the commando training, I was in infantry school training. Really tough year as well for one full year. It was really long training. And uh, one day uh, in April, I had one week holiday, like seven days off. And I was just thinking, I need to take this chance to go travel somewhere. I took a plane. I flew to Tanzania. I climbed the Kili. I went back. And the day after, I was back in the training. You know, back. <laughs> that was just so... I was so drive and I want to say that so excited to do this all the time mm. I was just passionate about it and every time I could I would leave and one day I left to Indonesia and um, I was I was traveling with a friend at the time from the army and we went to a little island and my friend got really sick he got dengue fever so yeah. we could not move yeah. and there was only one boat a week so we're like okay if you cannot go in a boat today we're going to be stuck for another week I mean it was really 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 small island yeah uh, on that island was a was a girl as well that came from the north. I was coming from the south, and she went on this island. She said, hey, "I'm going to stay there for the night." And the day after, she was like, "I'm going to take the boat." And people told her, "There is no boat. You need to stay here for another week." And so she was stuck there, and I was stuck there, and so we met, <laughs> and we and, left together. And she's Spanish. She is Dutch, actually. She is Dutch. Dutch. Okay. Yeah, she's a uh, yeah, really. The woman I needed, someone who's really independent and uh, yeah. like to discover and explore and is not scared to go outside the conference room. So that's how we met. And uh, like six days later, I was going back to Belgium and telling her, like, I'm going to go for this four-month training. 
would you like to be my girlfriend? <laughs> exactly <laughs> what happened. Yes. And you know what? You like traveling. I like traveling. Let's say in four months, we book a plane ticket yep. and we decided to go to Canada. And uh, let's just meet and do a little travel again if we don't like each other because we don't know her so much. Uh, yep. You know, we just travel your way and I travel my way. It's no problem. And so we did that and uh, it went really well. <laughs> so, Clearly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And actually, she was kind of the trigger that uh, really changed a lot of things in my life. <laughs> so mm. I was, that time, she was living in Spain. I was living in Belgium and uh, I was active commando paratroopers and I loved it. My work was fantastic. Uh, my friend, great. I was doing well financially, emotionally, physically. Everything was good. But deep inside, I had this little voice like saying, there is more there. There's something more. I don't know. I could not really put words on it, but I was just thinking when I, when I met her, I told her, look, I have a dream. I want to travel the world. And she told me, I have a dream. I want to live in Nepal. Oh, wow. Okay. So we decided, you know what? What if we quit everything? We go travel the world and we end up in Nepal. Sounds like a good plan. Everybody yeah. was like, you crazy. You both, <laughs> she was a teacher director in international school. And I had my, <clears throat> I was a good position that I worked yeah. so hard to get there. Yeah. So people are like, you're insane. Why would you quit this? Everybody's driving, trying to create this situation, this perfect life you have. And now you have it and you want to quit everything. You know, it makes sense. But you know, when you have something that's in your gut, you're like, mm, I need to, yeah. I need to trust. And, that's, that's and, and, and how, how long had you been deployed? Um, you know, after you came out of your train, how long have you actually been deployed for? And you met her when you were like, wait a sec, there's, I've got this feeling. Can you remember how long that was for? <clears throat> yeah. This feeling of wanting to try somewhere else really started years before, but I was so driven with this objective to become an officer in this unit that it was just a side thing. I was not really paying much attention to yeah. it. And then when I actually was in active duty, I stayed, I worked there for one and a half year, which is not so long. Mm. Thinking after seven years to get there, one and a half year after I decided to, to leave. So yeah, I was just, trying to figure out, is it the smart thing to do? It definitely didn't sound smart. But yeah. is it something I really feel like I would do? And yeah. And so I quit my job. She quit hers. I sold my car. I sold my computer. I sold even my clothes. I put everything I had left in the backpack and we took a plane and we left to South America. So, so just and, wait a sec. So just can I just yeah. understand just to, the context here. So once you've left the paratroopers, there's no coming back, right? I'm assuming. Well, the, I had a, an interview with the, the colonel there and he said, yeah. look, if you want, there is a possibility to, in, in the year, I think you could come, I could come back yeah. and with some extra training, go back kind of in the same position. But after that, that's just gone. That's just finished. Yeah, definitely. So that was a, a big, big decision. <laughs> and did you <laughs> and make that big... call to have that safety net of a year or, 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 how was, it anyway. or was that just always I, open? I had it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So you was went really, to... Was really tough. Yeah. You know, when, when, uh, when I actually started my first day as a commando paratrooper there, um, you know, when you arrive in a new platoon and you're like, you're young and you get to a platoon with people that they are serving for years and years that sometimes older than I was and you yeah. assume command on everybody, you know, the new one, the newbie just coming out all fresh and you're like, oh, you're going to do this. That's really tough to create this, this connection at the beginning and, mm. and it went so well. I mean, I was really lucky of this bond I had with my platoon and everything was going so well. So leaving this was really, really, really hard. But I still had this feeling that was stronger. And so that's what we did. And when we quit everything and we took the plane and we left. 
And then we had the most amazing adventures for almost two years, uh, going from the Caribbean, South America. So tell America. me where you went, Charles. So where did you land and then just, uh, just run through kind of... All right. So we started first in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually found a job there for six months. We wanted to take a, a little break. I wanted to cool down a little bit to switch <laughs> my mind from military wor world into civilian world. And I yep. also wanted to learn Spanish. And she was speaking Spanish because she was living in Spain already. So we're thinking, oh, let's spend a couple of months in Costa Rica. And I went to the to university there to learn Spanish. And uh, when I was ready, and it went really fast because I'm French speaking, so I was really lucky with that, because we mm. planned to travel from Costa Rica all the way down to El Tierra del Fuego in Ushuaia. So all the way down to South America, wow. South, South. Yeah. And uh, so that's what we started doing. And uh, we had amazing uh, cruise trips in the Caribbean. We arrived in Colombia, in Ecuador. And in Ecuador, like, you know what? And in Colombia, we said, let's buy a car, a 4W. And I'm going to build a bed inside. And so we can drive all the way down. That's going to be amazing. And so that's what yeah. we did. We were in the street in Bogota, trying to figure out renting machines to cut the plank. And oh, that was such an adventure to just yeah. create this whole thing. And we did it. We started, we were in Ecuador. We drove like maybe 2,000 kilometers. Suddenly we had a problem with the engine. Mm. And we got really frustrated because they told us, ah, you need to change the engine. And that, that's the price of the car. You know? yeah. <laughs> And so we had no choice. We had to put the car on the platform from Ecuador, go back to Colombia because I was illegally staying in the country where it was so, so complicated. Um, and another little anecdote because we, we had no choice than to sell the car and we just realized we lost $10,000. All the savings we had for the car for this trip was just gone. Yeah. We had, that was just like it. So we could manage to sell the car and we sold the car for like, I don't know, $3,000 or something. And that was really interesting because the guy said, yeah, we're going to pay cash. And we were just at the border of Colombia and Ecuador. And we ended up in the car, someone driving us around, getting money from people through the window. We think, what are we doing? And we arrived in this place. And <laughs> that was a little living room. And on the, on the table, that was full of cash. And he paid us $3,000 in notes of $20. You know, that didn't sound it right. And we were like with my wife thinking, okay, are we getting ourselves in trouble now? Because we needed to cross the border. So we hide all this money everywhere. And we went <laughs> because we're thinking, and there's going to be someone on the border who knows us. You know, we were thinking maybe we're going to get robbed because they know we're carrying the cash, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> what a story. It went out well, but we were really, really sad because we realized, okay, either we use this, uh, the budget we had for Asia to actually yep. travel to America or we just say, okay, too bad for South America and we go to Asia. And we had to take this really difficult decision. And so we took a plane to go to Japan at that time. Okay. So, so that was the end of the, yeah, that was the end of the South American journey. We just stopped in Ecuador and so the rest is for later. <laughs> so 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 you you were money laundering <laughs> Pablo's money or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Probably realistically <laughs> something like that. And then yeah. you ended up in Tokyo. And I live in Tokyo, and uh, I love Japan. Japan is amazing. Uh, it was and just how long so were you in there for? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, even from Australia, it's expensive. So, yeah. Now we could not afford to stay longer. We were really traveling backpacking style because obviously we were setting for a trip of maybe one two years. So yeah. we knew like the budget really really little. So uh, we stayed only for seven days in Tokyo, um, and then we took the plane. We went to the Philippines. And then uh, we went to Southeast Asia and we traveled all the countries in Southeast Asia. And so we arrived in, uh, in Nepal yep. after almost two years. And we were there and uh, 
So my wife had a, that was a big dream for her to go there because, uh, well, long story, but she just fell, she was traveling one day to India and she had some trouble there. And then she kind of escaped the country and she took the first plane out and she arrived yeah. in Nepal. It was completely messed up. And there is a Nepali family took her over. Wow. And that time she, she felt like those people gave her so much, so much comfort and support and everything that she wanted to give back. And since that day, she went there again, like maybe four times. And she was, because she's a teacher and she was mm. also giving some, doing some volunteering teaching in the local school there. And so that's why there was a big dream. So I want to live there. I want to give back to this community. And uh, so we arrived in Nepal full of uh, hopes and motivation. And then we tried to figure out a way, how are we going to stay in the country? Mm. But it was really, really hard to get uh, a, a visa, long-term visa, residency, or a working permit. And so we were like really sad thinking, ah, maybe it's not going to work. And so we were brainstorming, trying to figure out what's going to be the way. And I don't know if have you ever been in Nepal? No, not yet. No. So it's on the foot of the Himalaya. I mean, this is a yeah. mountain. This is really the outdoor playground by excellence. This is, yeah. this is just amazing. And we were in Pokhara and uh, in the city, there is a lot of paragliders. Mm. And so we were just walking around and seeing all those gliders in the sky. And I was just thinking, maybe it's an idea. And why they are so a foreigner with a tandem backpack. And I was thinking, okay. And I asked, are you working here? He said, yeah, yeah, I have a working permit. I just had the light, like, oh, maybe it's possible. So I went to a paragliding agency and I just, yeah. actually, I met a guy who was, I didn't know, but it was really famous in the paragliding world. I just went super naive, like thinking, hey, if I'm a tandem pilot, can I receive a work permit from you? I said, yeah, it's possible. I said, okay, how long does it take? I said, do you fly? No. <laughs> okay. He said, if you work really hard for two years, at the soonest, two years, yeah. and then you can see what's going to happen. So I was thinking, you know what? Why not? So I told him, okay, what if I get my license in two years, I come back. Can I work for you? He said, yeah. All right. I went back to my wife. I said, I have a plan. I have a plan. I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to fly. I'm going to become a tandem pilot. And then we're going to come back. I said, okay, sounds cool. How long? Well, maybe two years. <laughs> All right. So she figured out, she looked for a job and mm -hmm. she found a job in Indonesia and Indonesia was our that's the country of my heart. That's the first country I've ever traveled to. And that's where I met her as well two years yeah. after. So we ended up there in, uh, in Jakarta. And for okay. two years, um, she was working as a teacher director in an international school. And I was flying full time. So we are also, we had again a long distance relationship because I was all the time going all around Asia to go flying, 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 flying. To get so when you're saying hours. flying, you're saying getting a pilot's license or flying yeah, as no, in? Para paragliding pilot license. Yeah. Okay. So I was... Yeah, I was spending my, my days in the sky with my glider and flying. And that was just, that was just the dream life. All the pilots I was meeting there, like, yeah. so what are you doing? I fly. What? Who is paying for it? My wife. <laughs> I was wonderful. <laughs> I was wonderful. But that was really, and it, it has been hard because for two years, that was really intense for her as well mm. to be a lot of time alone in Jakarta mm. while I was just going to this beautiful location to go fly and she was working. But that was to, to get our objective yeah. to go live in the and Jakarta is a crazy busy city, man. I've only been there twice, but it's frank. I couldn't believe how big yeah. it was. Like, you know, when I got there and, and just the, 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 the pace that it runs at, it's crazy. It's, it's definitely crazy. I love Indonesia, but living in Jakarta, it's challenging to be honest. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, knowing from what I picked up, you finished your two years and you got your license and, and then what? Yeah. Um, 
then I want to first explain how it ha- what happened when we went back to Nepal. This little mm-hmm. life-changing story uh, that happened in Indonesia. So that, was that in Indonesia? Sorry, before. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah exactly. So um, where do I start? Yeah, so I was busy flying all the time and trying to push myself. I decided I'm going to join competitions. And that was really interesting because when you fly for half a year and over a year and you go in competition and I realized that's the best growing curve I can, I can follow mm-hmm. because I'm with really experienced pilot, etc. And I'm really proud because I did two uh, Asian World Cup. I changed my oh, chip. Wow. I went, I joined there. That was just the best experience ever. But anyway, that was really helping me to push. And so one day I was in a competition in the Sulawesi Island. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, that was a beautiful day. I started the competition well. I was with a, a team of with two other pilots and everything was so nice. I did a really good score that day. I was just landing and I go back to my hotel. I was like, oh, okay, let's go celebrate tonight. And we decided it was maybe 4.30 p.m. <clears throat> I go down the hotel and I'm just in the parking lot in front of it. So a hotel was on the coastline. Mm. Tropical paradise. <laughs> I go out of the hotel and suddenly the whole ground started shaking. It started shaking. I could not stand up. I was just, I was next to my friend. My friend was like a moment, one meter above me. I was one meter above him. I mean, I could not understand what was happening. When you see a solid surface making Mm. waves, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I, I could not understand what was happening. And suddenly I hear this massive noise. The whole hotel behind me collapsed. I was, I was terrified. I, I could not understand what was happening. And I was just thinking a few seconds ago, I was 50 meters in front of it. Not even. I was just waving at a receptionist. Mm. I could feel my, my, whole, my whole body was just constricting. I wanted to throw up. I was like, what the hell is happening? And it started shaking a little bit less. I could stand up. I run with my friend towards the hotel. thinking We need to help people. We could mm. not see anything because of all the dust coming out. And then when the dust started dissipating, we saw this five-story hotel was just, just a pile of debris of maybe 10 meters, 15 meters high. That was insane. And we were thinking, what can we do? But it was still shaking. So the, the, the roof was still falling apart. And those big blocks of concrete were falling, like, like big, like car size, just falling everywhere. And then suddenly, I spotted a little girl in the fifth floor. But like, okay, it doesn't really look like a floor anymore, but she was like high up. And she was trapped in metallic bars. You know, those, those wee bars in the bed, in, in the, yeah, in the yeah. concrete. Mm. She was trapped in the middle of this. She was not touching the ground. She was high floating there. And I just wanted to do something. And this very moment, she looked at me in the eyes. I got this shivering in my whole body. I got to do something to help. And I was with my friend. My friend tried to jump, to go. I hold him back, this big concrete of block of concrete are falling down it's like okay we can do something but let's not die as well trying to help some other people mm. well the drive was stronger we just went there and we started climbing up in the debris with his help we just opened those those metallic bars i took the little girl in my arm and then i saw, I saw so many yelling and all those sorry <laughs> all the, the those noise was just horrible and i and i could see the um, the feet, the legs of the mom, she was there, mm. a lot of blood everywhere and yelling. And I was like, okay, we need to go help her again. So I went down 
Mm. Delivery. I walked down with this little girl in my arm and I was thinking, I'm going to put her safe far away from the building and then I'm going to come back to help my friend free the mom from this big block of concrete. So I went down as I could. I was down and I'm thinking, I'm going to put her on the beach because I'm going to go far away from this building. I didn't really think about it. But the moment I turned, I started running towards the beach and I saw this black line in the horizon. I'd never seen that before, but I knew what it was. Strangely enough, I was like, there's a tsunami coming. Obviously, you are the cause. There is an earthquake. There's a big chance this is happening. So I turned around and I yelled to, to my friend, like, take shelter. There's a tsunami coming. Like, yeah, take shelter. Where do you go? All the buildings yeah. are collapsing. You half collapsed. There is nothing left. I was looking in front of me and there was this litter, you know, at the entrance gate of the parking, there was this litter security post, you know, this litter block of concrete. People were sitting inside, whatever. Yeah. I think, okay, I'm going to go on the roof of this thing. That's going to be maybe enough. And then I saw a tree next to it. And I had to think fast. The tsunami was coming at 700 kilometers per hour. I mean, that's fast, right? I look at the tree, I look at this thing, and I think, you know, the foundation of this little building must be really nothing. So I decided to go for the tree. I put the little girl in the tree. I climbed up in the tree. The wave was coming faster, faster, faster. <laughs> I see it coming. I tried to take my phone to call my wife and say, look, I love you. I'm sorry. Whatever words could have come out that time. I'm so, so grateful that the call never went through because what happened is uh, half the city, okay, there's been a liquefaction uh, phenomena in the city. So um, everything was gone. Everything sunk in the ground. Mm. Whatever, there was no connection. I'm really happy it never went through because it would have been horrible for her to read this message. I was with this little girl in the tree, one, one, hand, one arm, I was holding the trunk. On the other side, I was holding this little girl. I was looking at her. She was so confused. I could see in her eyes, like, what's happening? And look at her, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. In my mind, I was just thinking, man, you're never going to make it. I mean, look at this coming to you. Well, I hold it so hard. I mean, I had, I had the print of the bark of the tree printed in my bicep for like a week after. Mm. I was with one side of the tree, the other side of the little girl, the wave came. And this little security post, I wanted to go on top first exploded but you see these walls were just projected like 10 meters up in the sky the cars were just flying around the trees were just being smashed by this strength but it's, it's like you know it's like a big fist that is coming and taking everything out and wiping everything out where it's going it hit the tree and i was so lucky that i was on the coast so there were not so many debris in the water yeah means that it was mostly clean and i think that's one of the things that saved us as well I was there, it hit the legs. Thank God the, the water was up till here, so it did not completely wipe me out. I was just being dragged with my legs going there, trying to as strong as I could. And then suddenly the wave started with the water started going a little bit down. And like we made it. And the tree was still shaking, the earth was still shaking. There was still a nightmare behind me. The city was burning, the alarms of the cars were just going, all these people yelling everywhere. That was just chaos. But I was still alive. I stayed in this tree for 40 minutes with this little girl. It was getting dark. I was thinking, I can't stay in the tree. I don't know if there is a second wave because the ground was still shaking. It did not stop, seriously. There was aftershock after aftershock all the time. I was thinking, if there's a second one, I'm in the most vulnerable position ever. I need to go take shelter somewhere. Mm. And that was one of the most difficult decisions I had to take. I was thinking, okay, I have two choices. Either I stay in the tree or I go down the tree and I try to run. And... I decided to go down the tree. And so I went down, I took the girl on my shoulder 
and I tried to run, but it's impossible to run. I did not really realize, but nothing was even. There were holes everywhere. The ground was just stuck in the position after the wave shock was coming. So the power lines were down, the building were collapsed, and I started to run. I had water really high and to go as fast as I can, thinking if the wave is coming right now, I'm dead. And that's because of this decision. And that was really tough. I fell in a hole. I was with metallic bars in my legs. I was watering until here, the little girl on my shoulder, trying to put her out. That was horrible. Luckily, we found, I found a little, another building that was, there was like the building was not finished. And so the, the first floor, the walls were not built already. So, so I open, could yeah. see. Yeah, exactly. So I climbed there and uh, I climbed on the car, put a little girl on top and we could reach this place. We stayed there for another two hours and the ground was still shaking all the time. And I was thinking, is this building is going to hold? And I was just thinking all this time, this little girl, I, I'm completely responsible for her survival. I mean, she's just doing what I, what I do. I just, I'm <laughs> sorry. You know, just thinking she's, she really kept me alive. Mm. Because wow. I had a mission, I had this goal, and without me, she would not do it. But without her, I wouldn't have this drive to actually push it through. She was five years old. I just my, the old world just went silent, and I had just this focus: keep her alive, keep her alive, keep her alive. Doesn't matter what's happening. We stayed for two and a half hours in this other building. Uh, just we were wet. It was cold. I was with her. We were just hugging, trying to keep warm and I was trying to, because she was asking, where's my mom? Where's my dad? That was horrible. What do you say? What do you say? I, I thought my friend is dead. Probably the mom not going to make it. And you could hear still building collapsing because, you know, <laughs> still happening. After two hours, I decided uh, I gather everything around. <laughs> I took a little backpack. I could find a lighter. I could find a, some tools or ropes. I went down. I found some water bottle. I was thinking, this is, I need to survive now. What's going to happen? Mm. I took the girl on my shoulder and I left. And I went more inside the city because the water was going down. And then I realized what was happening. The whole city was on fire. And this liquefaction, right? It's like the, the shockwave is making the water molecule vibrate in a certain frequency that makes the ground liquid. So we had, it's, it's, it's impossible to actually visualize if you don't see a picture of it because you cannot mm. understand. Suddenly, houses sunk in the ground and because it was a light uh, slope, all houses and trees were just drifting down. And so yet at one side, a pile of houses, like two, three houses on top of each other with... It, it's impossible to really, I, I could not understand what was happening. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. This, this phenomena, if you don't see it, if you don't have a rational explanation, you think this is not possible. Well, I work in the city trying to figure out other survivors, trying to find other survivors and arrive in a little group of people. And suddenly I see my friend there and I cannot believe it. I run towards him like, when you're still alive, this, this moment of joy, like I was just so happy. And he told me the mom of the little girl survived because someone else was there and they could, with the three of them, lift up this block of concrete and she was wow. heavily wounded, but she was alive. So I could tell her like, your mom is, your mom is alive. And man, what, a, what an evening. And my wife, unfortunately, had no news of me. And she realized, we always call in the evening when I'm away 
tell them I'm safe with the flying, etc. Mm. And uh, in the news, he quickly noticed uh, that there has been a natural disaster, a double natural disaster in this area. So she's been in contact with the Belgian embassy and trying to figure out if they have news of me. And my name was in the red list because I had no, uh, because my phone was completely dead because of the water and everything anyway. So I had no uh, means of communication. And so uh, my wife thought me dead for, I don't know many hours, but a long time before I could actually reach her and tell her I'm alive, don't worry. <laughs> it's easy to say, well, <laughs> don't, don't uh, worry. <laughs> <laughs> But well, I was this little group of survivors we were there, and then uh, I reconnected to the other paragliding pilot because luckily we had radios when we were flying, so mm. we could still the people who could have uh, their material and they still there they could still communicate, so we could uh, regroup together. And um, so yeah, I just been around the city with this little girl trying to figure out where his mom is, trying to go to the different hospital. But you know, you go to a hospital and you realize that the hospital is just there is nothing anymore. So all the patients are just in the street, and and I don't want to explain what because I don't want people to visualize what I saw there. But just five thousand people died that day. I lost a lot of friends. It was just horrible going in the debris of the hotel the day after, removing the blocks and trying to figure out. Is the body of my friend there? I hope he's still alive. That was that was so so intense, and I've been really lucky because I actually could have uh, an evacuation plane to leave this city and go back to Jakarta. Mm. Because in Indonesia, the paragliding uh, the paragliding uh, organization is depending on the air force, and because I was a pilot in this competition, I could have a spot in this military plane. So this would never happen normally. A civilian cannot go in a, a military plane from another yeah. country. Whatever I could, so I was really grateful for that. And like 30 hours after the event, I was back in my living room in Jakarta with my wife. Wow. So, yeah. um, firstly, thank you for sharing. That's 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 a lot of information. Um, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I I can't even I can't imagine what that must have been like. So thank you for being so open. Um, did you did you manage to reunite the the the, the girl with her mom and, and how how did that story play out? Well, this is um, yeah, that was one of the most difficult emotional moments for me. There, it's like the day after when they told us there is a plane, the plane is going to come, and mm-hmm. you know I managed to found uh, to find a, a scooter and I put the little girl there and I went to all the the groups of uh, survivors trying to ask, trying to figure his mom where mom was. And I did that for like six hours the day after, and of course it's so much chaos around I could not find her, and uh, I went back to my friends and they decided okay let's put her face uh, photo on Facebook and try to figure out by someone who knows her right, and uh, someone answered that, and. So this person was about to come to pick her up, to, to pick her up in this uh, little camp we were. And so I had, uh, I had to take the plane and she was just falling asleep and she would not leave my arms. I mean, she would not stay with anybody else than me. And I, I tried to let her sleep because poor thing, five years old, no food, uh, no water and this, all those events and being alone. <laughs> so I tried to let her sleep a little bit and to get her out of my arms, like that was just heartbreaking she would not put her feet on the ground she would just stay with me and she finally found asleep so i let her there and my friend said look there's a plane that is coming that's your only chance to leave right now you need to take this plane with all of us because after you can't yeah 
So I had no choice. And I said, don't say bye. And so I had to, I mean, give me goosebumps when I think about that moment because I promised this girl, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to find your parents. And I had to leave without telling her that that was just heartbreaking. And I went in this pickup and I decided to not wake her up to say that I was leaving because that was just a big thing works. And I was in this pickup uh, going to the airport, to what was left of the airport. And I started, I completely lost it. I, I just broke into tears and I just, that was all this build up, all this emotion that I suppressed completely to make my mind work and this survivor mode just being really active and it worked. But that, that very moment when I realized this little girl is going to open her eyes, she's going to look for me and I'm not there. I just, I just, <laughs> that was so, so hard. And I was thinking for my wife, I cannot say I'm going to stay there with her and, and it's going to be really hard. The sanitation, the food, the water, I had, I had this luck to take the plane. So I had to take it, right? So this dilemma was really, really hard on me. And I decided, okay, I'm going to take the plane because that's the best thing to do. And this little girl went really fine. Uh, the people went to pick her up a couple of hours later. She stayed with the uncle for the, one of the pilot there. So she was really taken care of. That was no mm. problem. But that was just to live with myself. That was so, so hard. And I'm, I'm in touch with her uh, since that day. I mean, I've been visiting her. I've been volunteering in the, in the refugee camp there a couple of times. And, and have you have you met her mother? Yeah, 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 definitely. I've been to their place. They invited me. Uh, I, I I met the whole family there. And so, how how was that first meeting? <sighs> well, that was that was really special because so the week after I was in, I was in in my apartment in Jakarta and I could not find joy in anything. I was just no. like I was getting waiting every day looking at my phone waiting for the news that did they find the body of one another of the friends you know that that was just that's crazy and the more days were passing the more no news the more chance there were that they would not survive so those days were just horrible i i could do nothing i just had no joy for anything mm. and uh i decided i need to go back there i need to go back there and help the people who need help so i i I made a videos, I raised like $50,000 and I decided I'm going to go there, but I could not go there because only military planes were landing and I was not allowed to, to board any military planes. And uh, three weeks later, I finally, uh, there was one uh, commercial flight that was going there with uh, relief and <clears throat> uh, volunteers. And so I, I jumped in the plane and I did one stop to the city where this little girl was living. And when I saw her, I mean, that was a uh, I kind of described just her face and my face and that was just together, just having back in my arms. That was so, mm. that was so beautiful. And I'm really, to the day, she, thanks to her, I'm alive today. If she was not there, I don't know if I had this, this need to fight to survive, right? That really, she, so, she, she saved me as much as I saved her, definitely. Yeah. So this was the most beautiful reunion ever. Uh, and she's so cute. She's so adorable. And so after I went to the refugee camp and I went to volunteer and, and, uh, use the money well for all those kids. And I've seen the most beautiful things ever. I mean, I was so, so lucky. I was, just, I was slightly injured, almost nothing. So well, nothing to say about this. I didn't lose any family member. I didn't lose my house, my car, my old belongings. I did lose my paraglider equipment and things. That was worth a couple of thousand dollars. Whatever, this is nothing. It was just mm. for pleasure, hobby, whatever. I was there with people who lost everything. They lost their child. They so, they, yeah. They buried all, one person lost 30 people in their family. I mean, that's, that's so insane in one time, in one evening. It is just so crazy. And I went there again, seeing the, 
what was actually happening, what happened in the city, you know, because just flying above it and realizing, oh my God, I just saw a little part of it when I was there, but the extent of the damage was just crazy. In those refugee camps, I was doing activities with children, uh, like drawing and stuff, just bringing some paper and pen so they could do something. I will always remember this. I was giving away some, uh, some pencils and with all the kids that were doing the activity with me. And then I give the last one and suddenly there is a little kid that's coming with her mom. She, the little girl must have been like five, six years old, not even. She's coming with her mom to me and just asking me to have a pencil as well. And I check my bag and no more. And I was like, oh man, that, that's horrible. What do I do? And then another kid, maybe five years older, is coming and giving her own pencil to, to this little child. That just broke my heart. This kid has nothing. They have no toys. They, yeah. have, they have nothing at all. They lost everything. He received one pencil and he's going to give it away for another child. I mean, I was in tears. That I could not believe the generosity in the, those kids. They taught me so much, seriously. Mm. And that's a, that's, a, that's a scene I will never forget neither about being generous to others. And yeah. you, what you give, you receive back anyway, right? Absolutely. So this was really, really, really beautiful. So obviously your military training helped you, right? I mean, that obviously as, as much as you could, you know, the calmness, the, the clarity, yeah. something I'd love to touch on and only if you're open speaking about it is how much, I mean, through the military and, you know, maybe going on operations and the PTSD and, and, and it's a, it's a huge in the Australian army. I know it's a huge unspoken thing. Um, I actually had someone on my podcast, Andy, who actually runs a charity for ex military he was also special forces aside for PTSD. How much education did you get for the PTSD and how have you tried to manage it? Cause I mean, the life altering event, right? How have you tried to or look after yourself to, 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 to the fact that you can speak the way you speak about it. So if you want to talk about that, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, of course. No, sure. Um, you know, yeah, in, in, in my training, we received some, talk and uh, some techniques uh, breathing techniques and stuff like yeah. this and we had we had psychologists coming to talk with us to explain what what's happening what is ptsd actually mm -hmm. so we had some awareness about it but that just stays this way you know um when you go on operation and there is something you immediately followed by a psychologist that is taking care of you can express what's happening etc yeah well um as you said definitely that day my training made me to the decision that led to survival of this girl and myself. And as I explained, I really suppressed all emotion. I was thinking fast, rational, just that was it. No feeling whatsoever. Mm. After when I left, this just all came in. And when I was back uh, in my apartment, it, I don't know if you can imagine that, but like 30 hours after that, I was in the tree surviving this. And then I was in my couch in Jakarta. First of all, it felt not fair for all the people who lost everything. Mm. Second of all, it felt not fair for all my friends that lost their life. And I, I just, like, I'm at the wrong place. But I was so, so glad to be with my wife, obviously. But that just, it was so fast, the transition from one place to the other, you know, from chaos to peace. It, it, it was, it was, yeah, really too fast. And so I had, it took me days to actually understand what, what was happening, what happened, and to deal with the images as well that were coming in my head. Um, and then I just could not stand any vibration. And this, this lasts for, for years. And I think nowadays I still have nightmares when I feel things are moving, you know. This, 
the noise that when the ground is shaking, it's really deep. It's a vibration that just goes through all your whole body. And I couldn't, I was really scared to go, not scared, but every time I was going in a, in a mall or something, I was feeling like, okay, if everything is collapsing now, I should take this exit. I should say this, you know, I was just analyzing yeah. everything yeah. to be sure, like I'm prepared. I, I'm seeing all those details and the amygdala in the brain was really working hard to figure out how to survive in every situation. And well, as I said, I could not find joy in anything. And I was just trying to, to make sense of stuff. And I was really cautious to not turn into, uh, into distraction because, of course, I wanted to escape my reality. I wanted to escape my own mind. I wanted to not see what I saw. The, sorry. I just didn't want to see those images anymore. Mm. But I was there. So I made a promise to myself. And I'm going to be reopened. But I said, I'm not going to touch alcohol. And yeah. I'm really glad I did because it's such an easy escape, you know. And I was... I did watch a lot of movies. I just tried to have other stories in my mind, but I could not, never finish one because that was, too, that was too strong. I just had to face it. And yeah. a lot of reflection, meditation, and just breathing helped me really go through this. Three weeks after, I started being able to go back to the gym and actually finish the workout. Just, you know, I was just going somewhere, doing, doing one exercise, and I was like, oh, I can't. I was leaving. And I, so three weeks later, I started slowly, slowly living again, I would say. And then, just like it was not enough, the friend that helped me save the life of the, of the mother of this little girl, uh, I received a text that he went missing. I was about to, to go uh, join him in India for a, paragliding, uh, for a paragliding trip. And I had to join him like uh, two weeks after that. And uh, I received, uh, yeah, I was texting him and then no answer, no answer. And then I tried to reach out with other people and someone said, yeah, he's been missing since yesterday. Nobody has news from him. He went flying and he never came back. Wow. And so I was like, you know, I just dropped like, no way. This is not happening. This is not happening. And uh, they found his body in the, in the mountains there and uh, he crashed and he had a, he was bleeding in his, in his head and uh, it just, it was at 4,000 meters altitude. He got sucked in the cloud and he hit the mountain there and, uh, and he did not make it. I mean, that, that was a, well, long story short, it did not make it that day. And so uh, yeah. I realized on my team of three people, there was one young guy of 21 years old, Glenn. There was this guy, Casey, and uh, I was the only one alive on this photo I had with the two of them. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Final Destination. Uh, it's a, it's a, I think that's a word in English. Well, whatever. It's, it's a movie when uh, there is a plane crash and the plane survive and one by one, all the people are dying because they were supposed to die. So death is coming after them. Oh, yes, you know? yeah, I have seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I was just looking at this photo and I'm the only one alive in there. Like, you know, those thoughts are coming in your mind anyway. And I was just barely coming back on my knees when I just put back down even deeper than ever thinking, no, it, it just risk his life to save someone else. It doesn't deserve this now. It doesn't deserve this. And so that was really, really, really hard moment for me to overcome again this mm. loss and, and those, all those questions were coming back again. And actually that's the moment I also get this switch. I was thinking, dude, for all the people that lost their life, that lost everything, for all the friends that you lost, you are still alive. It's a miracle that you got a second chance. You got to do something with it. And I promised to myself that day, I'm going to live every single day of my life to the fullest and inspire other people to do the same. And that just 
suddenly went from being a victim to being a survivor. Mm. This mental shift was everything. I started thinking, I got to live. Damn it, I got to live. That's my duty. I'm still there. Come on, make something of it. And since that time, I started having this deep, deep mission on wanting to share this word, to tell you, because since ever... I was always kind of living a bit in the future. You know, when I was in Colombia, I was thinking, wow, Japan is going to be so great. When I was in Japan, I was thinking, oh, the Philippines and Thailand is going to be amazing. Always yeah. living something that would about to come. Mm. And I just realized you can't live like this. You can't be happy for something that's going to come in the future because we never know if it's going to actually happen. So what if I start being truly fulfilled and happy with, what I, what, with here and now, with what I have? Because this, I'm for sure, I am there. I'm not in the future. And I was a, that was the biggest lesson I ever learned. And it really did change my life for the better. No, it was a horrible, dramatic event. And I got this trauma went on for, I mean, for, for, for a month, for a month. Yeah. Uh, this is coming and still I have nightmares about it, as I said. But in a way, I'm grateful this happened because I really found a purpose. When I quit the army, I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do in my life? And I've been working as a survival instructor. I created a course for kids. That was great. I've been doing first aid instruction. I've been even working in a, in a little company in Nepal for a month uh, with a product designer and something, well, whatever. I did a lot of different things, but nothing was really fulfilling. Mm. And the paragliding was really fulfilling because I liked it. But I was thinking this, there is a little lack of meaning, of, of depth into it. And so when I had this mission, I thought, I need to inspire people to create their best life, to take ownership of what they're doing and live every single day to the fullest. So that was a life. I love this quote that says, sometimes beautiful gifts come wrapped in ugly paper. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. When, you, yeah. when you can see perspective on things and we can't change an event, but we do have the control and the power to change the meaning it has for us. We can change the learning we have. So when you had this mission, and, and I think this is, I'm assuming the answer is yes here, but this is so important for people listening and how quickly your mind can flip, right? When you had that pivot shift or looked at it through a different lens, was it literally day and night to say, okay, I'm back and I'm going to refocus on the next task? Or was it a still, I mean, obviously there's still the trauma and there's a processing that's going to have to happen, but did it feel like, you know, Francois was back? It felt like... One day, I had no purpose, no joy. The second day, I had this drive that was back again. Mm. I knew what I wanted to do. And it was, this was powerful. Now, it took me a while to understand how I'm going to share this message. Okay, that's beautiful. I want to inspire people. What do I do? And that's where coaching slowly came into my path. So what did that look like in the early days? Because you obviously, you've got a yeah. story. You've had one hell of a life. And, and I know myself as when I wanted to start inspiring. It's like, well, how? You know, the how is difficult. So, so yeah. how did you start your journey and how has it evolved since then? Yeah. So it took, I think, more one and a half to two years to actually come to something really clear. Mm. So after this event, uh, I st we kept working on our goal to go live in Nepal. And uh, we did it. After two and a half years, we took the plane. Finally, from Indonesia, we arrived in Nepal. I went to this guy and I said, hey, here I am. Do you remember me? He's like, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. The guy, I don't know what he saw in me that time, but he yeah. believed in me. I came back and said, yeah, let's do this. That was fantastic. So I went there and uh, this was last year. We went in the mountain and uh, I was 
so I was in this in this in the area of his school there. That was so so such a beautiful area. I mean, you have the Himalaya in front, we're fifty kilometer fifty kilometers away from the Annapurna Ranch. I mean, that's so gorgeous. Yeah. And uh, I was looking one day talking with him and said, Oh, it's so beautiful. I, I could really see my house here. And he's like, Yeah, where do you want? I'm like, You're kidding. No, just just find a place you like and uh, we can build a little house. I'm like, really? That's awesome. So let's do that. And I, I started digging the foundations and I wanted to build a, a house by myself, like a, with a, a earth bag house, you know, yeah, yeah, bags yeah. you fill with dirt and you, you build something. I wanted something that was earthquake resistant for sure. And Nepal has a history with it. And yeah. this was, I wanted something eco, something natural. So I was there with my wife. My wife was uh, volunteering in the, in the village, uh, teaching English to the kids, etc. And I was starting working as a paragliding pilot in this outdoor school. So we were finally living this dream. That was so, so great. And I was building my house with my bare hands. I mean, that was so, so thrilling. We got to live there in the mountain above the clouds. I mean, uh, paradise. Yeah. And I loved it. And then Corona, yeah, COVID came. And the situation in Nepal was really, really difficult. I mean, it has not been so mediatized, but the thing is, the government did not allow people to go, uh, the farmers to go in the field to take all the vegetables, to, to recall all the vegetables. Mm. The problem is that this season, the, the vegetables were rotting in the field because they were not taken and they could not plant the next season. The so next that season, was, yeah. exactly, that was two seasons that was kind of screwed up. And the government, when they said, all right, um, we have for three or four months rice reserve in the country, after there's nothing. All border was closed. Oh, oh, with, I mean, Nepal is really locked with the Himalaya on one side and yeah. India on the other side. They, they closed the border. So everything was stopped. And uh, we saw that the food was getting less and less. And we could see the reserve of rice in uh, where we're staying with the family there. That was, that was getting really, really small and thinking, okay, maybe, maybe it's time for us to, because we're still really lucky to be able to take a plane and leave the country, go back to Europe for a while and come back there. Because mm. obviously the guy also could not, really pay us because we were struggling with the economy of everybody. I was not I'm going to ask him to pay me to survive there, whatever. He could not feed his kids, you know? Yeah. That really makes sense. So, uh, yeah, we were there and we were thinking, okay, let's take a plane. Let's go to Europe for two, three months. And then we go back to Nepal. The problem is that our last residency was Indonesia. So we were a European citizen, but non-resident. And so all the evacuation plane, we were on the bottom of the list. So yeah. we had no plane. We could not leave the country because this suddenly they said no evacuation plane anymore. So you need to think, we were living in a four square meter room. Uh, with, we, were, we had no electricity, uh, not, not everyday electricity. We are solar yeah. uh, system to heat up the water. I mean, we had, yeah, that was really basic, basic living, but we were really happy because that was simple life and we loved it as well. Yeah. But then when we decided to leave, we needed to be a little bit connected to figure out what was happening. And there were like maybe 300 foreigners stuck in the country trying to leave. And we did everything. We gathered all together online, uh, sending uh, emails to embassies, to European Commission to, to try to help us. We needed to be evacuated. But they said no. So there is one, uh, you know, something's going on, not always clear there. There is one travel agency who said, ah, we're going to organize a charter flight. I don't know where they got the authorization to charter a flight and land in a country that is in lockdown. I don't know, whatever. You, you don't, so, some questions you don't need to ask. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for two months, 
we didn't know. Are we going to leave tomorrow? Are we going to leave the next week? We didn't know. We didn't know because, you know, the people like, yeah, we string together people. If you have enough people, we're going to charter the plane or not. Or We had no internet every day. So going up the hill with the phone, trying to have signals and read like 200 WhatsApp texts, thinking what's happening, what's happening. Oh, that was just hectic. Seriously, that was, that was hard. One day um, they said, okay, plane in two days, organized. I did everything I could. I got on the list and then we had to move from this mountain area to Kathmandu. That was a whole trip by itself, seriously. Whatever, long story short, we arrived in Kathmandu, we could have this plane and that broke our heart because we put, like this this travel agency, they charge $2,000 per person for this flight, which is ridiculous because a return ticket normally is $400 and I was just charging $2,000 per person. They were just making hell out of money in this one. And that was ridiculous. I mean, we were the two of us, but we had talking with families of five, you know, when that's a massive budget. And the people yeah. is like, if I don't take this plane, I lose my job. But I ended to put so much money, I have loan and things. Imagine the situation. We were really sad because we were just putting a lot of money that we saved to be able to live in Nepal yeah. to actually leave the country <laughs> after all these years of preparation. Uh-huh. Story about resilience, right? Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> where was, did you end? Where, where was that flight going to? So we flew uh, from Kathmandu to Frankfurt in Germany. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there, my parents went to pick us up, and uh, so we arrived in Belgium. I mean, the thing is, we we tried to leave, but we didn't know when we could be leaving, and you know, there was a whole dream life that we're building there. We didn't really know what's going to happen, and suddenly we're in Belgium, and again, like. Okay, from the mountain there to Belgium for the whole life dream. And now, okay, we're just going to wait two months and let things sink. But we were a bit messed up as well. You know, yeah. when you change countries and things like this, it was just too complicated. However, we were there for two months. So we left almost all our stuff there in Nepal. And after two months, we saw the situation is not getting any better. What can we do? Um, there was no chance to go back to Nepal because we were living from tourism there and there was no international tourism for the moment. So we said, okay, we need to stay longer in Europe, but staying in Europe without having a job, I mean, financially, we could not make it because we spent almost so much money to leave, the con- to leave Nepal and arrive there. So, well, my wife uh, looked for a job and she found a job in Bulgaria. And yeah, so we arrived here and she found a part-time job, meaning that when we arrived in the country, we knew that we could not make the end of the month. Like we mm. got to be creative day one, right? Yeah. And actually, so this is how we ended up here and I opened my company and I started officially working as a professional coach. Mm. So just to explain this whole, this whole story, I was busy with self-development since after the tsunami, I started with self-development things because I realized I need more out of life. I need to understand more. I need to grow myself. And I got really immersion to self-development and addicted to it in a way and so i realized wow this is the way i can help people by coaching coaching is such a great tool and i you know it took me a while to actually am i am i going to be your coach uh, you know this little imposter syndrome i was feeling ah, it's not really my identity i'm not sure i can do that but I, in the same time i wanted to share my message so it took actually one and a half year to actually come to something tangible to something clear i arrived yeah. in bulgaria like no i'm doing it for sure so uh, I opened the company and I'm working full-time as a coach since we're here. Brilliant. So I mean, that's, that, the, that, yeah. that's one hell of a story. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked you in the beginning, why are you in Bulgaria? You said, wait, now I'm glad I waited. Yeah. That was <laughs> but, long, yeah. But, the, but, that, but that imposter thing is huge. And, and, and you know, I've been coaching for a couple of years and it's actually, 
because I'm a computer nerd, that's my background. You know, that, that's how we've kind of made all the money. And it was only actually two days ago that I finally stepped into this role. And what I mean by that is one of my clients that came through the, you know, the trial class is he introduced me to his friend. Oh, this is my health coach. Yeah. And it was, you know, after the years of imposter and, you know, helping people, but it was the first time I went, huh, maybe that's who I am now. Well, that's not, not maybe that's, and that is who I am. So that imposter things, I think we all struggle with it as we pivoted to something new. It's just trying to, you know, assume that new identity. Yeah. And you know, when I was, so when this coaching stuff came into my path, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do some, uh, some life coaching. And mm. I didn't know how to call it, actually. It was a bit weird. But I felt, wow, it's a bit hard on my identity. You know, I was a mm. commando part troopers and I'm a life coach. I felt like I like the warrior identity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready to embody this. You know, with all the prejudice you can see, this person that is talking to you and taking notes on the pad. I didn't know, really know what I was coaching about, but just to, to put it like this. <laughs> I was really hard to actually tell people around me like this is what I'm going to do. Mm. And slowly I just realized I got my own coach. Yeah. I mean, if you believe in coaching, you have a coach, even if you're a coach. <laughs> yes. And uh, the guy was, I was talking with him and he was just looking at my life and think, man, you're, you're a high performance person. You're a high performance coach. Mm. And suddenly it was like, oh, I resonate with that. I do resonate with that a lot. And so I got my certification as a, a high performance coach. And this is more matching to who I want to be, how I want to show up and how I want mm. to support people to create their best life. But definitely the switch of identity took me a while. And I realized my coach was just pushing me. Did you post this on, on social media? I was like, yeah, not yet. And I realized I, I'm just scared to step up as this new, as this new me in a way. My, my LinkedIn bio is the last thing left because that's still all my nerd life. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the last thing I've got to switch across, right? It's, yeah, it's crazy, yeah. but, I, but yeah. I hear you. So, I mean, the high-performance coaching, I mean, that's just understanding your life now is, is clearly a beautiful niche for you. And, and how, how, have you, how have you found it attracting people and how inspired are you? you know, because obviously you, you, you're the 1% of the 1%, but how inspiring has it been helping like-minded people just and see them push? How, how, how's that been for you? I think coaching is the most beautiful journey uh, mm. for yourself as a coach, but also to see the transformation in the people you're working with. I mean, there is nothing better than to see someone realize, seeing his world and thinking, wow, I can change something. And the reward has been so fulfilling to do this work with people that I just got like, I need more of that. And that's just something that's really driving me a lot. Um, the high performance coaching that started after also I read this book from Brandon Bouchard uh, about the high performance habits. And I realized like, well, oh, this is cool. I, I love this. I want to do more of those things. And I think my story is helping me to inspire people to take ownership of their life, that everything is figureoutable, that you can make it up anyway. That's your choice. And I started doing some more speaking and I, I want to even grow this in, in, in this year, especially because when you have a message, it's too egoistic to keep it for yourself, right? When you have something you want to tell the world, you need, it's my duty to put it out. And so I'm actively working on this one and that's, yeah, that's giving me a lot of energy. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's this whole concept of just working with people and helping them to push their limit further to realize that the limit is just what they thought it was. Mm -hmm. That's not actually what's true. So actually, when you, when you say that about sharing your story, I'm having Jackie, who did our certification, I'm having her on the podcast. Um, she's got a new concept called the Elevation Code. And actually, one of her parts of that code is selfishness. But it's not about 
being selfish is about being selfish, not sharing your message. Mm-hmm. And I know so many people who've achieved amazing things and you push them saying, well, if one person heard your story, if two people hear a story, you're being selfish by not sharing it. It kind exactly. of, it gives that perspective flip and like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see what you're doing. You know, cause it, it takes the ego out of it and you're not saying, Oh, look at me, but yeah. it's like, I actually can use this message to help enhance someone else's life. Exactly. I love that you say that to leave the ego out of it because this is what is stopping us in a way. I'm scared. Yeah. To, I'm fearing failure. Maybe people are going to be rejected, whatever it is. I'm not enough. But the moment you see this in a way, like, oh yeah, that's selfish. <laughs> that's yeah, really absolutely. eye-opening. Yeah. So my friend, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to process. There's, there's been a lot in there. Uh, <laughs> I just, yeah. I, I just, well, yeah, I mean, firstly, I just want to thank you so much for sharing openly. Um, it's, it's, it's been a, a fascinating story and I know it's going to inspire a hell of a lot of people. Um, and just be, be very proud of what you've achieved, man. I think, I think you're a very, very unique individual. And, um, the fact that you can speak so openly speaks volumes for you. So, so just from me to you sincerely, like, thank you, man. I, I think you're amazing. Um, and I'm you. very, very glad I did follow my gut and, and intuition and reach out to you. So let's just wrap this thing up. Where can people find you? How do they get hold of your coaching business? I mean, so Francois is yes. also going to become a certified wildfit coach. If you're in Europe, you can reach out to him as well. So how can people get hold of you? And, and, and yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So uh, people can find on my website, www.chasing-excellence.com. And uh, on Instagram as Francois de Neuville as well. Um, I just, I wanted to say thank you very much for having me on this podcast because this is helping me in my mission as well to share my story with one more person, you know, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And uh, just one more thing I wanted to add. When you ask, how did I deal with this, with this trauma and stuff? By sharing it, by openly talking, talking it out and help trying to give a, a certain meaning to it a positive meaning to it and help others get inspired that really helped me to deal with it myself. Mm-hmm. I realized that was a purpose that was bigger than just me and my, and my victimization or whatever it is, you know, yeah. I was just yeah. bending this to other people and try to give something out of it, to take something out of it. So I think that's a, for everybody, when you, when you deal with a situation that is hard, if you can just take a little bit perspective and if, and remember this quote that sometimes beautiful gifts come wrapped in ugly paper. That's, that's a good takeaway. <laughs> Francois, that's a beautiful way to end it. Thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And yeah, be sure to reach out to this man. He will help change your life. Thank you, Clint. Thank you very much. <laughs>